Second Corinthians chapter four, verses three, and then we're going to read to verse eleven of chapter five. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not. Lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God, and not of us. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. So then death worketh in us, but life in you. We, having the same spirit of faith, according as it is written, I believed, therefore have I spoken. We also believe, and therefore speak. Knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise us up also by Jesus, and shall present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, that the abundant grace might through the thanksgiving of many redound to the glory of God. For which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal. But the things which are not seen are eternal. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, and a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. If so be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened, not for that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon, that mortality might be swallowed up of life. Now he that hath wrought us for the selfsame thing is God, who also hath given unto us the earnest of the Spirit. Therefore we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Wherefore we labor, that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every one may receive the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest, or made manifest in your consciences. When I was a boy, I lived in rural Alaska, and there was a I think the biggest difference that I want to share with you today is just the, the stars. And I've spoken to a few of you at lunch about it. It's, the stars there at night, it's so dry and it's so clear that it's not like a you know one here, one there. It just blazes across the sky in glory. And there was one particular night when I was a kid. I was 
riding back from an errand across town. And I looked up, and the stars were there in, in their usual brightness. And just as a pinpoint, it started to just spread out across the sky. And it was a display of the aurora borealis that was unique even for Alaska. You know, pinks and greens and, and white, wispy, just dancing and, and moving and, and twisting. And I remember getting off my bike and just laying in the snow and shivering in the cold Alaska winter night in wonder at what I saw. I felt as though I had been brought into the very presence of God. And, and I was able to see a private display of His glory. It made me feel very small. The heavens declare the glory of God. That night will be forever burned in my mind as one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. Years later, I read an account of a Christian worker in the, New York, in, in the inner city of New York. And it broke my heart to read that there were children there that had never seen the stars. They'd never left their homes. They'd never been more than a few blocks from you know, steel and concrete buildings. And they had never seen the stars. The man-made lights of New York City had obscured them by their comparatively dim glow, the glory of the created heavens. I had reveled in the creation all my growing days and could not fathom what it must be like for those children to have never been able to lift their eyes toward heaven. And with a thankful heart, behold, with certainty, that there is a God that is greater than our finite minds can fathom. The years since that amazing night have been filled with one headline after another, another of discovery in the heavens. The Hubble telescope, it seems, has brought us face to face with the greatness and the vast expanse of space around us. We have looked farther and farther out into the abyss, blackness, and we have discovered countless trillions of stars. Lights we once thought to be stars themselves, we have found to be whole galaxies. Systems of stars sprawling across expanses of space so large that it boggles our minds. And all of this in the smallest pinpoint of light that shines on our dark night sky. All of this vast creation around us is mirrored in the seemingly boundless detail within us. When we look inward, we see the various systems of our bodies working to sustain life and the individual organs performing critical functions. When we look deeper, we see the cells teeming with activity. And then the molecules of our being ordering themselves and arranging themselves according to fixed laws. Further on, we encounter the atom and the subatomic particles with amazing power locked up within them. We have within us and all around us systems within systems that are like clockwork, moving and making life possible. When we stop to consider, we must stand in utter amazement at the creative power of our God. I wanted to talk to you today about eternity. To be honest, I spent the better part of last week trying to come up with something else. <laughs> I feel as though I stand at the shore of a vast ocean and I can only get my toes wet. I will, I hope, at least set you to thinking. And my prayer is that both you and I will know the Spirit's work in our hearts in the days to come, revealing to us what eyes cannot see and what ears cannot hear of the glories that will meet with us in Emmanuel's land. 
When we think of heaven, we often go into a sort of autopilot and think of the no pain, no tears, no death, no suffering. We are glad that we will be with Christ and that we will be free from sin. But do we really stop and think about what awaits us? Do we stop to think of how great the God of heaven is and therefore how great heaven will be? Let's begin this afternoon by looking at the God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness. Our catechism says in answer to the question of what is God, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. He is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. He is without limits and unable to be defined. He is infinite. We are finite. We have limits. Limits to our intellect, to our strength, to our language. Limits on every side and more so since we are fallen. Even Adam in his perfection was limited. He was bound by time and by space. God is infinite, unbounded. To say even that he is immense is to perhaps misspeak. For that is to say he is large. And that is to imply he has limits. He is unmeasurable, unsearchable, incomprehensible. He is everywhere present. Simply because... He is. We cannot wrap our minds around this because everything we know is limited in some sense. But God simply says, I am. Just as he is not bound by space, neither is he by time. Eternity is not a long time. It is the absence of time. It is completely outside of time. Never a beginning. Never an ending. Always now, was, and will be. Excuse me. He was boundless in everything because there is not space for him to grow. He is completely without limit. He cannot change. For what could change? For there to be change, there must be room to move, to grow. Time must pass. We read that when God created the heavens, that it was finger work. It was an easy thing for him to scatter the stars, the galaxies, to set the planets in motion and to create the numberless myriads of living creatures. It was the mere word spoken that brought the worlds into being. Our God is infinite in power. He upholds it all and knows the stars by name. He says that the very hairs of your head are numbered, that even a sparrow does not fall to the ground without his knowledge. Our God is infinite in knowledge. Think of that for a moment. A single hair on your head among the billions of people alive today. A tiny sparrow falling to the ground on a planet that amounts to no more than a speck in the created universe. And God says, I know. Each of the billions of souls on this globe are in motion, thinking, and carrying out those thoughts. God is aware of it all. The psalmist declares, O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my down-sitting and mine uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. Thou compassest my path and my lying down, and art acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it. Altogether, <clears throat> thou hast beset me behind and before, and laid thine hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain unto it. God tells us that he is moving all things to work for the good of his people. All things. We cannot comprehend it, but God is infinite in his goodness. He is the absolute ruler of all, the king of kings and the lord of lords. Nebuchadnezzar, that proud king of antiquity that we read about last week, 
he found out that he was but the servant of the Lord. Pilate, when he stood before Christ, was told, you could have no power over me except it were given you from above. Job rightly spoke when he said, He is wise in heart and mighty in strength, who hath hardened himself against him and hath prospered, which removeth the mountains and they know not, which overturneth them in his anger, which shaketh the earth out of her place and the pillars thereof tremble, which commandeth the sun and it riseth not and sealeth up the stars, which alone spreadeth out the heavens and treadeth upon the waves of the sea, which maketh Arcturus, Orion, Pleiades, and the chambers of the south, which doeth great things past finding out, yea, and wonders without number. Psalm 103.19 tells us that the Lord hath prepared his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom ruleth over all. And again in Psalm 135.6 we read, Whatsoever the Lord pleased, that did he in heaven and in earth, in the seas and all the deep places. In Daniel we read, all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, and he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth, none can stay his hand, none, or say unto him, What doest thou? Our God is a sovereign ruler over all he has made. He is wise and just and able to uphold all that he has decreed. He is everywhere present. Does not the psalmist declare, Whither shall I go from thy spirit, or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, Surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to thee. Solomon tells us that God has set eternity in the heart of man. And we do have a sense of the eternal that we cannot shake. At the same time, we can't really grasp. We could literally take any attribute of the God we serve and spend all of eternity plumbing the depths of it. We could not come to the end of his greatness, his power, his knowledge, his love, his grace. We cannot really fathom how great our God is. And to me, that is the greatest and the best thing about heaven. For there, will, for there we will see him as he is. And we'll never reach the end of his person. We will never run that well dry. For it is an infinite, eternal and unchangeable God with which we have to do. He quoted earlier, His love has no limits. His grace, no measure. His power, no boundary known unto men. For out of His infinite riches in Jesus, He giveth and giveth and giveth again. The glory of heaven is God in Christ. There are many that talk of our exploring other worlds and seeing all that God has made, but I think we miss the point. That is all we look forward to in eternity. Certainly, I would love to explore the world around me and the cosmos out there just waiting to be discovered. But when Moses said, show me thy glory, God did not take him upon the back of an angel and tour the heavens and say, look here at the star I have made. Behold the black holes in the mysteries of space. Nor did he tell him that there were trillions of cells in the human body and that the complexity found in one of them would rival that of whole cities. No, he caused his goodness to pass before him. He hit him in the rock and showed him the gospel. 
Does not Paul in the text we read at the beginning tell us, For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And in Revelation, when describing the city of God, it says, And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it. For the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb, the Lamb, is the light thereof. The most wonderful and complete revelation of God is to be found in the person of Christ. It is certain that the heavens declare the glory of God, but how much more does our Redeemer? In heaven there will be an ever-growing and ever-deepening appreciation for what He did, for who He is. We will never be able to plumb the depths of His humiliation. We will never come to the end of the meaning of the glory of His exaltation. He is infinite, and we will never come to the end of what he is, and therefore what he has done. Charles Wesley, in his famous hymn, says, In vain the firstborn seraph tries to sound the depths of love divine. And it will be just our case for all eternity that we will be continually stretching to take in all that God is and has done, and be forever praising forever shouting for joy at the next new discovery of his greatness, of his power, of his love. The hymn we just sang also paints the picture well, when it says, The bride eyes not her garment, but on her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace, not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. The lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. When I was younger, I used to imagine that it must be a dull thing for the angels before the throne that cry, Holy, 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 continually. That heaven itself would be rather cumbersome if all we did there was to offer continual praise. Think of it. If there we are unencumbered with sin and the darkness of mind and heart that accompanies it, if there we shall see him as he really is and be made like him in holiness, How can we think that our hearts will not surely burst forth with praise and thanksgiving at every new glimpse of him? Each new discovery and further revelation will pull forth the joyful and sincere praise of hearts that are pure and full to overflowing. And this will never end. There will be ages to come. Ephesians 2.7 tells us that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. Ages. Chapter after chapter will open before us new and larger vistas of the incomprehensible greatness of the love of God for us. There is no end. We will never become tired of what we see there. We will never reach bottom. I said earlier that the creation work of God is spoken of as the work of his fingers. But even more amazing is the fact that when speaking of the redemption of our souls, Isaiah tells us that the Lord hath made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. When we witness the wrestlings of Christ and the the Satan in the wilderness, when we go with him to the garden and see the bloody sweat, when we follow along and see that awful darkness of the cross and hear the dreadful cry, Why hast thou forsaken me? We must confess that we cannot know the lengths to which he must have gone to redeem our souls. But there will be ages to come. And what must be the joy in store as we have unfolded to us that infinite God that so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Christ will be the center and the sum of that place, the spring of all our joys. 
but to enjoy heaven, we must be changed. Our corruptible bodies must be raised in incorruption. The mortal must put on immortality. We may not all die, but we shall all be changed. There, he shall change our vile bodies, that we may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. There shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. There they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. There we shall know, even as we are known. There we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. There the church will be complete, and our closeness to one another is hard to imagine. For Christ says, The glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. (coughs) Think of it. One, as he and the Father are one. When we think of our relationships there, we have a hard time grasping the greatness of the change that will overtake us. Our friendships and glory will not be maintained from behind walls of protection, for there will be no need. There will be no pride, no envy, nothing to hide. In that place, love will reign in every heart. Those in a higher state of blessedness will, in true humility, look upon those of lesser standing without a tinge of pride. Those in a lesser state will admire and love the greater without envy. For none will be able to say anything in that place but that Christ did all this for me. Our very best days, our most loving moments here are but a shadowy and twisted image of that which is to come. Those, of you, or those that you struggle to love and that I struggle will be loved perfectly there. For in that place, both you and they will be free from that which hinders that perfect love. When we think of those that we have loved here, that have gone on before us, we have this hope, this expectation, that we shall see them and see them in their glory. Not as we knew them here, not as the sinful weak creatures of earth, but as the sinless and in heavenly bodies. Husbands and wives, children and parents, those relationships most dear to us here will be so full there that in comparison they will be like the stars shining at noon, for they shine just as brightly during the day as at the night, but are swallowed up by the glory of the noonday sun. Then we will be changed. We will forever leave behind those things about ourselves that are most ugly, most vexing, most troublesome. In Scripture, we find several lists that tell of the character of those that will not inherit heaven, those that walk in sin and do not find it a vexation of spirit and are comfortable in it. For the sake of time, I will not read them. But from them we gather a little of what heaven will be. Heaven will be, then, a place where there is no envy, no fear, no unbelief, no covetousness, no murder. There will be no death, nor sorrow, no more tears, and no lies. There will be none of that which is a constant snare and temptation to us here. Gone the hatred and the strife. In short, heaven will be a place where there is no sin and not a single inclination to it. In that holy place, all will be holy as he is holy, and and will be without sin and unable to sin. But what does having heaven in view do for us here? Let's look again at 2 Corinthians 4. In verse 8, it says, We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. 
cast down, but not destroyed. And again at verse 14, knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise us up also by Jesus and shall present us with you. And finally at verse 16, for which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. For which cause we faint not, says the Apostle. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are eternal, we faint not. We are troubled, but not distressed. In this life we are sure to have trouble, and at times it will be on every side. But we are not distressed, for if we are looking toward heaven, we can see beyond it. Trouble will come, but trouble cannot last forever. There is a heaven, and there we shall leave our troubles behind. There we will be safe in the arms of Jesus. We are in perplexity, but do not despair. The world we live in is a very perplexing place. Did not the preacher cry, vanity, vanity, all is vanity? Do we not see all around us many perplexing and confusing events? Woe to the world around us. For they are perplexed. And there is not a place of certainty to be found here. Is it any wonder that many despair? But not so the Christian. Theirs is a firm foundation. We have a city whose builder and maker is God, and we have a sure guide and comforter in his Holy Spirit. He will lead us through this waste and howling wilderness to that place where the foundation is sure and never to be moved. There, perplexing and vexing questions will be banished forever. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. When we live with heaven in view, persecution is sure to follow in our steps. But here is consolation indeed. For Christ told us, marvel not that the world hates you, for it hated me first. And did he not also say to us that he would never leave us or forsake us? Yes, all those that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution, but what a comfort to know that he has trodden that path before us, and that he will bring us to glory. We are cast down, but not destroyed. The just man falleth seven times, the proverb says. But think... Could he fall that many times and not get up in between? We cannot be destroyed. Cast down, yes, but not destroyed. We are united to Christ, and he is in heaven. Where he is, we shall one day go. We can no more be destroyed than can he. If Christ be overcome, then we are overcome, but that cannot be. We are afflicted, but counted a light affliction. Thoughts of heaven will give us joy in the midst of trials, for we will with Paul reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Think for a moment of the power of this in his life. He was comparing his current state of things to the eternal that awaited him. Later in this same letter, he describes his afflictions, his light afflictions. He was in labors more abundant, for his life was a ceaseless work for the kingdom of Christ. He received stripes above measure for five times. He received 40 stripes, save one. One time was enough to kill a man. Three times he was beaten with rods. He saw the inside of prisons frequently, and once he was stoned. Three times he suffered shipwreck, once being left afloat for a night and a day in the deep. Arduous and frequent journeyings put him in peril by waters, 
robbers, countrymen, heathen, in the city, in the wilderness, in the sea, and among false brethren. I don't know where else there is. <laughs> he was often weary and in pain, hungry and thirsty, cold and without proper clothing. He fasted often and carried about in his heart the care of all the churches. And yet, in Romans 8, he said, The present trial is not worthy. Not worthy to be compared to the glory which shall be revealed in us. He must have had a vision of heaven and the eternal weight of glory that we know very little about. Indeed he did. For he later recounts that he had been taken up to the third heaven and there heard things that he described as unspeakable words and words unlawful to utter. He knew heaven in a way that we can only imagine. And it enlivened him and energized him to do and suffer great things for the kingdom, knowing that those sufferings were not worthy to be compared to the glory that was coming. When we look to heaven, it changes our outlook here. When the world around us is perplexed and in despair and our eyes are on the eternal, people will notice. And perhaps they will say, what is the reason of the hope that is within you? When we look to heaven, we see that the raging of the heathen and their imaginations are vain things. For he that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord will have them in derision. When we see heaven before us, we can, like patience in Pilgrim's Progress, progress wait for our good things. For we know that we shall have our good things, and that lastingly. Let the world laugh us to scorn. We shall have the last laugh. Let the persecutor come and even kill the body. Because we are safe in the hand of him that can kill both body and soul in hell. And he will raise us up at the last day. We can be poor and without earthly treasure. For we have an inheritance and glory that fadeth not away, incorruptible. Let this earthly frame crumble and go back to the dust from which it was made. For we shall one day take up a body incorruptible and undefiled. When we get a view of heaven, we can say with Paul... For we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened, not for that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon, that mortality might be swallowed up of life. Do you say yes, that is easy to say, but hard to do? I tell you, look till you look your eyes out, and look again at heaven. I just lost my place. really lost my place. <laughs> oh, there it is. When we do this, um, we will be unable to go to the stake to be burned, singing hymns. If we, like Stephen, see the heavens open, we will be like him, able to stand as the stones fly around us and say, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. It was the sight of Christ standing on the right hand of the Father in glory of heaven that so upheld him. Now ours might not be such a dire circumstance as that, but if we find ourselves cast down, look up, for your redemption draweth nigh. If we find ourselves deadened in spirit and cold in devotion, look away from the crumbs and the ashes that the world offers and look away to Christ. Look away to the Lamb that is the glory of Emmanuel's land. For in looking you will obtain the strength to look more. In seeing, you will see more clearly. Is it hard to look? Is it hard to see? No. But looking to the eternal necessarily implies a looking away from the earth and the things of earth. That is hard. 
But if we once begin to look away and up, we will find that the very act of faith that looks to Christ, in the very act of faith that looks to Christ, we will find the strength to look more. We said earlier that Paul in his letter to the Romans says, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared. He reckoned it to be so. The word reckon means to calculate or to take an inventory. He had added it up and was convinced. He was sure because he had looked at the numbers, so to speak. It was settled in his mind. And I would ask you, do we reckon this? Do we think this way? Or are we discouraged and cast down at every hindrance, at every stroke? What are we reckoning on? What is it that we think most about? The eternal or that which is of the earth? Are we putting more weight on that which is but for a moment? Or that which is eternal? Is this not the reason that sometimes we find ourselves so dull? Do we not spend the time we have given, been given here foolishly? Do we not live like there is no heaven? Frittering away the minutes until they become hours. The hours until they become days. The days until they become weeks and months and years. Do we not live like we do not really believe in heaven? Is the artificial light of this present evil world blinding our eyes to the eternal reality all around us? Do we, like the child of the city, only dimly view the stars because so much of earth's light is blocking our view? Had I been in the city that night long ago, I would have never seen the stars blazing forth, nor witnessed the dance in the heavens. Are we not able to see clearly because we have too much of earth's false light blocking our view? What are we thinking about? Do we spend more time listening to the voices around us or listening to the voice that speaks from heaven? We are being bombarded constantly by a cacophony of voices from all around us. The internet, the TV, the radio, even books can be a snare to us here. Do we spend hours listening to the radio? Do we watch TV just to relax, turn off our brain? Do we sit down at the computer to look something up and find that when we rise, hours have passed and nothing has been accomplished? And I am guilty. (laughs) When I say we, I mean we. Um, We have instant communication at our fingertips, but how much of that communication is eternal? Cell phones, text messaging, email, chat, Facebook, the list goes on and on. So much noise, so much input, so much output. How much of what we say, how much of what we hear, points us or our hearers to Christ? We must not deceive ourselves here. The time we spend in the company of fools does have an effect on us. Proverbs tells us that he that walks with the wise men shall be wise, but a companion of fools shall be destroyed. If we spend three hours a day watching TV or surfing the Internet or any other number of things that eats up our time at best and at worst is a real snare to our souls, in five minutes reading our Bible, is it any wonder that we are more like the world than Christ? If we set our children down in front of the TV or the computer and let it be the babysitter, should we be surprised when they act like what they see there? We are but a vapor. The moment we opened our eyes on this world, a clock began to tick. Let us live like it. Do what you do on purpose. Watch what you watch on purpose. Hear what you hear on purpose. Say what you say on purpose. And let that purpose be always dictated by the word of God. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, for the days are evil. We need to become heavenly minded in our thinking, or we will be of no earthly good. 
Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, and if there be any praise, think on these things. How much of our thinking is right thinking? How heavenly minded are we? William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, <coughs> was riding on a train one day, amusing to himself about the people around him. And this is an excerpt uh, of an account he wrote about it. He says, As I looked out of the window, I seemed to see them all, millions of people all around me, given up to their drink and their pleasure, their dancing and their music, their business and their anxieties, their politics and their troubles, ignorant, willfully ignorant in many cases, and in other instances knowing all about the truth and not caring at all. But all of them, the whole mass of them, sweeping up and on in their blasphemies and devilries to the throne of God. He goes on, I saw a dark and stormy ocean. Over it the black clouds hung heavily. Through them every now and then the vivid lightning flashed and loud thunder rolled. While the winds moaned and the waves rose and foamed, towered and broke, only to rise and foam, tower and break again. In that ocean I thought I saw myriads of poor human beings plunging and floating, shouting and shrieking, cursing and struggling and drowning. As they cursed and screamed, they, shrose, they rose and shrieked again, and then some sank to rise no more. He goes on to describe a mighty rock that rose up with its summit towering high above the black clouds that overhung the stormy sea. Upon the rock, some had found a resting place from the storm, and he went on to say, On looking more closely, I found a number of those who had been rescued, industriously working and scheming by ladders, ropes, boats, and other means more effective to deliver the poor strugglers out of the sea. Here and there were some who actually jumped into the water, regardless of the consequences in their passion to rescue the perishing. He then went on to describe the larger class of those on the rock in this way. Though all of them had been rescued at one time or another from the ocean, nearly everyone seemed to have forgotten all about it. Anyway, it seemed the memory of its darkness and danger no longer troubled them at all. And what seemed equally strange and perplexing to me was that these people did not even seem to have any care, that is, any agonizing care, about the poor perishing ones who were struggling and drowning right before their very eyes, many of whom were their own husbands and wives, brothers and sisters, and even their own children. They were engaged in different pursuits and pastimes, some of them were absorbed day and night in trading and business in order to make gain, storing up their savings in boxes, safes, and the like. Many spent their time in amusing themselves with growing flowers on the side of the rock, others in painting pieces of cloth or in playing music, or in dressing themselves up in different styles and walking about to be admired. Some occupied themselves chiefly in eating and drinking. Others were taken up with arguing about the poor drowning creatures that had already been rescued. Now this is a very sobering picture indeed. But is it not accurate? Do we not see the terrible hell that with open, gaping mouth awaits those that neglect the truth of the gospel? Do we not get so busy with life that we do not take the time to tell them of their danger? Are we too self-conscious to risk ridicule? When we find ourselves thinking in this way, we can be sure that we have taken our eyes off of heaven. We have lost sight of the glory that awaits and are looking more to the things that are seen than the things that are temporal and not at those things that are in fact the real and the eternal. May God deliver us from such a state as this and give us to see as the people did when he said, or as the apostle did, as he said, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men.
How much do we really think of eternity? How much of the reality of the eternal unseen world to come has really sunk into our hearts? Can we, like those in the vision of William Booth, look on without concern at the millions of souls all around us just sinking down? Heaven is a real place, but there is an eternal reality that is just as real outside of heaven. But in that place, there is darkness, not light, weeping, not rejoicing. If we thought more of heaven, we would think more of hell. The world all around us is sinking deeper and deeper into sin, and at any moment, souls all around us are in peril of descending eternally into the outer darkness. And just as we cannot truly appreciate the glory awaiting those that have put their trust in Christ without getting a glimpse into the endless, boundless, incomprehensibly great God that we serve, so we cannot truly begin to grasp or grapple with the misery and the endless depths of woe that await those that have rejected him. I must here pause a moment to address this unhappy subject, but there is a second eternal state. It is a place, as Christ has said, of weeping and gnashing of teeth, of outer darkness, of fire and mental anguish, a never-ending, ever-deepening pit of sin and misery. In that place, all good will be excluded. All thought of peace or rest will be banished. All hope will be forever gone. Everything that heaven is not, hell will be. For here will be the fearful. Terror will reign in every heart. Here will be the envious and the covetous heart. Here the conscience long silent will rise up like a cancer that will eat at the soul. The worm dieth not. Every murderous heart will rise against every other in hatred and strife. The lying tongue will rule and will cut and devour without mercy. Here will be the devil and his fallen comrades. Here will be suffering the likes of which earth's pangs only dimly foreshadowed. For here sin will abound, and rather than lessening the strokes, they will only cause these abandoned souls to curse more, lust more, covet more, sin more, and ever deeper will these poor souls sink in the wrath of God revealed against all unrighteousness. Satan, these several millennia, has not mended, but become worse in his opposition, and will continue still until the end, when his rage will only increase, because he knows that his time is short and doom sure. Likewise, hell will not lessen the propensity to sin, but rather, with the merciful restraint of the Holy Spirit removed from them, these souls, with hardened and ever-hardening hearts, will sink everlastingly into the abyss. No hope, no hope will be found in that place. But to the sinner I would ask, why would you go there when a way has been made of escape? Now I cannot know the struggles of your heart. I cannot know if perhaps there is one here among us today that is unable to say, I know that heaven is mine. Perhaps one of you, dear children, do not yet know the Savior. You have heard of him all your life. Your parents have told you of the things unseen. And you have never come to Christ and given him your heart. You have never trusted him with your soul. You believe perhaps that he is a holy God and you are a sinner. You know that there is an awful hell waiting for those that reject Christ. Fear has gripped your heart on more than one occasion, but you have always turned aside to some amusement that occupies your mind until the terror passes. As the darkness falls and your eyes grow sleepy, you have often thoughts about your soul, but you have put them off time and again. I was one of those children once. And I stand here today pleading with you to stay in that place no longer. Come to Christ 
Give him your heart. He is gracious and kind. He will not deal roughly with you. The lie that you have entertained in your heart to this point is just that, a lie. For he is not harsh and unloving, but gracious and kind. He is calling you to come to him and find the love of an eternity, calling you to leave behind the false and temporary laughter of the earth and to take up the endless deep joys of heaven. He says to you, fury is not in me. He says to you, take hold of my strength, you who are without strength. He says, come unto me, and I will not cast you out. He says, let the little children come unto me. Will you stay away? He said to the nation of Israel, why will ye die? And I say to you the same, why will you stay away from him, in whom is all the goodness and truth, in whom is all the love that ever any heart could desire? Come to him then and live. And to you, dear saint of God, I leave you with these words of Christ. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom.